Welcome to Inside the Barn. I'm Sam Overmeyer. Joining us today is Sebastian Goulet. Sebastian is a play-by-play announcer for TVS Sports, calling NHL, ECHL, and major junior games. Since 2006, he's also served as a public address announcer for hockey at the Winter Olympics. He just returned from Beijing, where he worked a test event preparing for the games this February. I saw, or anyone who follows you on Twitter, saw you were over in Beijing getting ready for the Olympics. So kind of test trials, I guess you could call them. How would you describe what, what was it like? What was that experience like? Because I think that's something like, I, I'll admit, I didn't even realize went on. Well, it, it was not a very known fact that they were actually holding tests. They call them test events in Beijing. So uh, they had the ones for curling and figure skating a few weeks ago. I uh, managed to chat with some of the people who told me, get ready for what is a very serious bubble. And that's exactly what it was. Um, our flight in, I flew in from Montreal to Frankfurt, and it was a chartered flight from Frankfurt to Beijing on Air China. And uh, people on board were wearing full hazmat suits from now on. So that was a shock. Second shock was that there were only six of us on the plane. It was an Airbus 330. So (laughs) energy management there. I don't know about that. And uh, we got to the airport. Uh, Beijing's capital airport, Terminal 3, is actually the second largest passenger terminal in the world. And half of it is shut down so that foreigners can actually fly in and out for those test events. So huge space. Everyone there in hazmat suits as well. Uh, we get it through customs, get tested, a very deep test in the nose and in the throat, uh, make our way to the luggage. It was waiting for us. It had already been disinfected and sprayed. Get into a bus and actually have a police escort us on the aerpl- airport runways out to the city where they would actually shut down highways so that we can make our way to the hotel. Get to the hotel. Um I get my my room key, and I'm sternly advised, uh, until we get your results from the airport, you are not to leave your hotel room. Uh, That lasted for five or six hours. They brought us some food. Uh, My hotel did not have indoor halls, so it was all outside access. So they would leave the food on the porch, and I would eat it lukewarm a few minutes afterwards because it was pretty cold there. We actually got some snow uh, in the week I was there. Um, Got the test results, uh, made it to the arena the day after. And it was a very strict bubble. We had a bus for only the foreigners going to the arena. There were three of us in the bus. No police escort, but as soon as we made it to the arena, it was quite clear that we could not leave the site. So we would have all our meals either at the arena or the hotel. The hockey there was terrible. It was four teams from Beijing playing against each other, and the level was, you know, compared to what in Canada we might have at 13, 14-year-old play. But uh, the system is working. TV was there. Uh, the IHF people were there. Uh, the security was tested. They were, were to make sure that the athletes have a particular access. We are referred to as the workforce. We had a different access. We had no spectators at all in the building. So that made for a different atmosphere. But all in all, great people there. The people that we actually worked from that were from China had to isolate themselves for 14 days in the same hotel we were at so that they could work with us. And then they would quarantine for seven extra days after we left to go back to their regular lives. Uh, And we copy and paste that process in February. I'm wondering how they will manage to do the same process because on the flight back, I was flying to Hong Kong and then Toronto. There were only four of us on the plane. We got to the airport at 10.30. Our flight was at 1.45 p.m. 
And it actually took us two and a half hours to go through check-in, security, uh, all the tests that were required and the proof of vaccination and the negative tests and everything. And so for four of us for two and a half hours, imagine when they will be coming in by the plane full in January and February. That'll be something. Yeah, I mean, uh, I you heard kind of during the Tokyo Olympics that this is strict, but Beijing is going to be stricter was kind of the, you know, what you heard watching on TV and stuff. So that follows. And that's a good point of all the athletes from all the different countries uh, for, for the event is, is that something that's happened at previous Olympics, these, you know, pre-event trials? They've, they've done test events ever since I got into the Olympic movement in 2006. So November 2005 in Torino, we actually had like an European tournament going on. They do this for winter and summer Olympics as well, just to make sure that the, the place is ready, the venues are ready. Uh, communication with the, uh, they call it OBS, the Olympic Broadcast System. So the television people, everyone's on the same page. Timing-wise, for once, good because, you know, we may have issues. On our on our side, the sport presentation side, we want to shut down the lights of the building. We want to have projections going onto the ice. But we want to make sure that we're still pleasing the TV people. And then they discussed, and they said, well, five minutes to puck drop. All the lights in the building have to be open, so we have to manage our show accordingly. It's going to be the same thing in February when the games actually start. So it's a good thing that we have these, especially working with people that are not very enthused and knowledgeable about hockey. So uh, there was a lot of teaching going on during that week as well. Some people were there that were being tried out that absolutely did not make the cut and had not uh, enough leeway into hockey knowledge uh, for them to be working the actual games in February, but we tried out a few people. We managed to find a few good ones that are going to be able to follow and uh, keep up with the pace because it's going to be an NHL pace in February to the opposite of what we had in Korea four years ago. So looking forward to it. They're all great people. Uh, looking forward to work with them. Have you been able to see the game grow since you said you've done it since 2006, as you mentioned, the interim presentation? Um, obviously, Vancouver we know the game was already there and it, it was great, but the rest of those really aren't what we think of as, you know, hockey, traditional hotbed. You're not seeing NHL players come from Italy or South Korea. I guess Russia you did. So that mm-hmm. there was another one kind of there, but for, for the, you know, Italy, South Korea, China, do you see, can the, do the local fans get into it? Do they learn about the game and can you keep those fans? It, it was fun in Pyeongchang because at the test event, the crowds were very sparse and the people that demonstrated the most interest were actually the military. As soon as there was a hit on the ice, they would go like, Ooh, and ah, and start clapping and screaming. And as soon as the game started, we saw that, well, people could actually fly in from all over the world. So that was a nice base for a crowd. And a lot of Koreans that actually got to learn and love the sport over the week, the crowds went from, probably I'd say a few thousand when we started to pack houses for metal games. And a lot of them were actually Korean. So I think that the NHL and the IIHF has been doing good work into preparing those, I won't say second level countries, but where mm-hmm. hockey is less popular uh, to teach them about the sport. We have videos going, but explain, you know, how many players are on the ice? What is an offside? What is, you know, icing and everything? We go back to the basics so that they can actually learn and enjoy the games that we show them. And for us, you know, we work 25, 30 games during the span of two weeks. But for many of them, they're going to come to one, maybe two games during that tournament. And we want every single game to be an event they will remember and cherish forever. Uh, since we have no international spectators coming to China, 
in February, they're going to copy the concept they had in Tokyo. They call them athlete moments. So the athletes on the ice will be actually able to do like we are doing here, like a Zoom conference or a, a FaceTime meeting with people back at home that are cheering for them. That that led to some great moments in Tokyo. So we're looking forward to have them in, in Beijing as well. Um, so yeah, a bunch of local spectators from China. That'll be interesting in February, but I'm I'm sure that they will choose sides. I mean, the Chinese men's team will be there, which wasn't 100% sure up to a few weeks ago, but the IHF made sure that the, the Chinese men's team was there. The Chinese women have been doing pretty good also during the, the lead-up to the, the games. Uh, it will be interesting. It, it, there will be a lot of, uh, I think, enthused fans when these teams are playing. Uh, when we're going to have the Finland-Sweden contest, for instance, I'm not sure that they're going to be coming in by the thousands. But still, it will make for an interesting tournament. Do you know if the... um other athletes will be allowed to go to the venues. I know we saw that a lot at Tokyo, which was kind of neat to see supporting each other. The IOC has actually published what they refer to as playbooks in October, which is like the big lead-in of what needs to happen for people to make it to the games. And to the opposite of what we had during test event, where it was my hotel to my arena to my bus, when the games actually start in February, the bubble will start from the airport and will comprise every single training and competition venue. So, yes, athletes will be able to go from one place to the other. If workforce needs to, to change uh, venues, which happened to me in Pyeongchang, uh, the day before bronze medal men's, I was asked to go up to the mountains to do French for a big air medal ceremony. I had never seen big air before in my life. I loved it, and it was a Canadian that won the goal, so that was fun. But, uh, yeah, so we will be able to move around from venue to venue on days off, which is a good idea because at times – it felt like a, I wouldn't say prison, but you know, conditions were very harsh by Mo at times. In your Olympics, have you found a second or third favorite sport you enjoy getting to go see? I didn't manage to go see a lot of other sports because we seldom have days off in hockey. Uh, the few things I managed to go see in uh, Torino actually went to uh, speed skating, long track. That is for TV. It's great. But when you're on site, they do two, it was 500 meters day. So like 50 second races, mm -hmm. they would have two races and then resurface the ice, wait for a half hour, then have two races again. The whole event took like 10 hours. We left after six or seven because we were working the day after. I very much enjoyed it. The, the crowd has to be perfectly silent when the gun goes and then it just explodes with screams and bells and whistles. Um, I very much enjoyed to see, go see curling. That's the most Canadian thing you'll probably ever hear, but curling is fun. Um, and it's the one that has the schedule that fits the most with the times we are off for hockey. So uh, I will catch a curling event or two if I can manage to have the ice cube, which used to be the, the water cube back in 2008. And the ice rink, I believe, was the basketball arena, correct? For That's correct. The one I'm working at, Ukasong, which is actually the second hockey rink. It's 19,000 seats. I've never seen a second building that big for Olympic Games before. Uh, it's actually the building that hosted uh, a couple of those NHL China games back in 2017, mm -hmm. where the Kings played there. They had, like, huge signs of those on our way into the building. And, uh, yeah, it's a basketball venue. So if you sit at the end zone, you barely see the, the net that's right in front of you. It actually was a problem for us because we were standing on the platform in one of the end zones, and we couldn't see, like, from – the blue line beyond they're actually going to move us for the games farther down center ice. So we have a better point of view. It, it's important for us to be able to follow the game as well, more than just watching it on the big screen. And um, 
Yeah, so looking forward to it. The, the system, uh, refrigeration, I spoke to the ice manager there, was, was originally from Minnesota, now lives in Florida, he used to work for the Wild, and he said that they have, like, top-notch systems, that the ice will be great, uh, climate control is great in the buildings. The main national indoor stadium was also used in 08 for basketball, and uh, I've heard from my producer who also worked there that uh, conditions were perfect. So they'll be they'll be on the right page to, for them to have a great tournament starting uh, Actually, we start on the women's side two days before opening ceremony, so that'll be interesting. It seems like, from what you've said, they are full steam ahead. I know even to Tokyo, maybe even a month or three weeks out, there were people saying this shouldn't go, and I'm sure that has energized the Chinese, too, to believe they can do this. But it seems like, other than, as you said, maybe restrictions getting people in could be challenging, but they're ready for this. On a sports side, absolutely. I'm pretty sure that the politics will be something to check in the next few weeks, next few months leading up to the games. Uh, I mean, some countries might decide not to go after all. But health-wise, I think they are they are doing everything to make sure that we have a perfectly secure Olympics in Beijing in February. How did you get into this, being the announcer for the Olympics or public address announcers for their that I mean, it seems like a cool job. You can tell you have you have a passion and believement in the movement. What what spurred this for you? It's a great story. Uh, back in 2002, uh, I, I'm based out of Montreal, and our regular Montreal Canadiens announcer Michel Lacroix has been doing this forever. Uh, he was actually in the Olympic Loop, started going with the NHL guys in Nagano, and he was in Salt Lake. And uh, we had a professional lacrosse team in Montreal for one season only in the National Lacrosse League, which was called the Montreal Express. They started in the uh, fall of 2001. I managed to get the gig because the marketing director was from my hometown, which is Sherbrooke, Quebec. He hired me. And right before my first game, I had never done a professional gig as a PA announcer before. Management from the Canadians, the sport presentation management, come down and they say, have you done hockey before? And I had worked hockey in junior levels in Sherbrooke with the Beavers and the Falcons back in the day, late 90s. I said, yeah, sure, I do hockey. Well, they said, we'll be listening and we'll talk to you after the game. I do the game. I think we had like a 23-16 final score craziness for lacrosse. And they come down and they said, well, Michelle is headed to the uh, Olympics in Salt Lake City. Our backup has been working with us since 1976, and we think we're due for a change. So come see tomorrow night's game against the Rangers, and we'll we'll show you how it works. And you'll be our new backup starting in February 2002. So, of course, when you add the Montreal Canadiens to your resume, that helps a lot. 2005 comes, and I thought, well, Michelle can work the Olympics. But, you know, you know what? I think I'm able to do it, too. And back in the day, they were actually announcing games in French, English, and the home country's language. So there was a door for me to barge into. So I didn't know who to contact. I mean, I had no idea how it was organized. So did a bit of research on the internet, and I found the name of the competition manager, which is on the sports side, some guy from Norway. Managed to find his email. I thought, yeah, I'm the backup announcer for the Montreal Canadiens. I'd be very interested in working in the Torino games. Can you help me out? I thought, there's no way he's going to answer this. 48 hours after I get a reply, oh, I'm going to Torino next week. Send me your stuff and, uh, you know, I'll give it to them and we'll see what happens. Love the guy. And, of course, as luck would have it, a few months later, I get an email. Sure, you could be the third string French announcer guy. Uh, Can you work English? I said, yes. So that got me into the loop. And once you're in and you've proven yourself, the group that organizes it is based out of Long Beach, California. It's called Van Wagner Production, and our producer, Christy, works for them, Christy Nicolay. 
And she usually calls the same people back to work day in and day out for, I've done Pan Am games with her. I've done Olympic games with her. I've done summer games in Rio doing weightlifting and boxing, uh, limited in a French ceremony only role, mind you, but still I got to live through the summer Olympics for once in my life. So when this group is involved, usually my phone rings and I get the call. When other sport presentation groups are involved, it's a bit harder. Last summer in Tokyo, it was more based on a who do you know on an international federation level that could probably shoe you in for a sport. I'm not there with my contacts in the summer sports yet, so I, I unfortunately had to pass on the Tokyo games. But, you know, Paris 2024, I don't think there will be a great need for French announcers with games being held in <laughs> France. So uh, my sights are put on uh, Milan and Cortina in 2026, LA 2028, and hopefully Brisbane 2032, but that's a long way to go. We'll start by doing Beijing in 2022 and hope these go well. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. And I think there's a good lesson there. Just tr try it, reach out. Yeah. It didn't hurt anything, you know, doesn't respond or says no, no loss to you, but got a great opportunity. Is there excitement with the NHL players coming back? I know, you know, there, that's been a big debate. Lost them for a year. Seems the players want to go. I think the fans like it. What's around the movement like? It's, it's going to be a great TV event because, you know, we can't have anybody flying in from other countries to go. You know, there won't be the crazy Latvians and the drums and uh, all the Russian fans that might uh, might fly down or Canadians. I mean, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of Canadians in Korea, even though the NHL guys weren't there. So that's going to be lacking, I think. But yes, uh, on a sport base, and I've spoken to a few IHF people in uh, Pyeongchang, they are very much looking forward to have the greatest level possible. That's what they want to show at the Olympics, the greatest level possible of a sport. It unfortunately was not the case in Korea because, you know, businesses went in the way. And now that, that they have an understanding with the NHL, mind you, I still have my doubts with the situation that arose with the Ottawa Senators this week and games being suspended due to COVID, I think that might open a door that the NHL might pull out of the Olympics. I don't, I hope it doesn't happen because for one, old countries have to reorganize their hockey squads in a few weeks notice. So I hope they can manage to make it, but now the door is open for them to be pulling out. And I, I don't, I don't foresee it happening I hope it doesn't happen, but I think there's a greater possibility of it existing now than there was like two weeks ago. Yeah, and I think that I think we've seen the positive test and that threw everyone maybe for a loop that we're not as maybe out of this as everyone had kind of hoped when you look around the NHL this year with mostly full buildings and full schedule and all that. But one last one on the Olympics, and I, I have a feeling I know the answer to this, but do you have a favorite moment or experience that you've gotten to see? I, I'd imagine Vancouver's up there, but anything else that sticks out? Having the honor of working and announcing Sidney Crosby's golden goal, I mean, will never be topped unless I get to work in Stanley Cup celebration or something, but that'll be hard to top. I always remember my first time in Torino. I mean, you see, how can I say that? The essence of the sport. I mean, not everybody that gathers to one Olympic city speak the same language. But yet the sport being played by everyone is the same. And the fans are all cheering for their teams coming from all over the world. They don't understand each other, but they understand the game. And living that for the first time, the first game I worked was Switzerland against Latvia. 
I didn't know half the players. It w- I was nervous. I was a nervous wreck, to tell you the truth, even though I was working the noon game in the second building in a round robin that probably nobody cared about. But and it's it's when I fell in love with the movement. You keep referring to it as the movement, and I think it, it's a good thing you do because it is actually a movement to see people gathering from all over the world, united by one single sport that I've loved ever since I was a little kid, and to, to have the honor of, I won't say representing my country because I'm not an athlete, but to be involved with the greatest in the world at one particular moment and say, you know, I was there. I mean, you can't beat that. Yeah, I think that's one of the, that's one of the things I love about the Olympics and World Championships. You kind of you look in the crowd and there's people who just go there for the two weeks and there's Swedes and Finns and fans and like I said, maybe they can't talk to each other, but and you don't get that necessarily in an NHL building where you may have two different fans or whatever. But they're all kind of the same. We talk a little bit about your maybe day job, I guess. Yeah. Um, bro- broadcasting games or TV. Um, I guess in this season you do a whole num- number of games you told me a number of games number of different levels which i think is also very impressive but who's stuck out to you who's fun for you to watch this year so the first month of the season i've i've done quite a few games i do about two or three a week and uh well of course the edmonton oilers have just been great this season i mean the whole two-headed monster of McDavid and Dreisaitl have been just tearing it. I've been surprised by the way the Los Angeles Kings have been playing in the past few weeks as well. But I think for me, the story this year is your guy, Alex Ovechkin. I mean, at his age, to be able to keep on a pace like he has for this season, dragging his team to what their second, well, they're tied basically with Carolina atop the Metropolitan Division, it's like watching a great piano player, like having the Mozart of hockey on the ice when he's on. You know that something is going to happen at every shift he plays. And he's been well-rounded. I think he he doesn't play as aggressive as he used to maybe four or five years ago, but still manages to create things on the ice that nobody else can. So to me, that is the story this year. And of course, they, everybody's talking about the big objective and will he reach Wayne Gretzky's uh, numbers for goal. But just game per game, watching him and knowing that magic can happen at any time, that makes me very happy to be covering the Washington Capitals when I get to do their games. Yeah, and I mean, you said I'm in D.C. and someone who gets to see him fairly often I think this is the best he's at least played since that cup run in 18. And I, I think you mentioned something interesting. And it's, I think people focus on the Gretzky record and he just passed Hall. And I think that's neat, but it's also, it's going to be two or three years before he gets to Gretzky. So I hope people are enjoying th- this moment now. You mentioned the Kings. Um, they got Philip Deneau from Montreal over yep. the off season. It, is he a big influence maker? Because it feels like the Habs are missing him and he, the Kings have kind of turned it around. What what does he mean? The, the grit he brings to the ice is something that is greatly missed in Montreal. And I know that the Kings have been doing uh, quite well in the past few weeks and he's had his share of success. Uh, he brings something to the ice, but I think on a Montreal level, being a local guy and being verbal in the media and not cutting any corners. Sometimes the PR guys didn't like that at all, but you know, he would say the truth. And I think that that 
way of doing things is missed in Montreal. I mean, we've lost Katkanyemi to the Hurricanes. His season is not going too well, although his team's uh, is doing pretty good. But um, yeah, too, too many losses. Not the energy that we managed that managed to get the Canadians to the Stanley Cup final last summer. I mean, it just disappeared. It vanished. Not having Carey Price and not having Shea Weber, that kind of took its toll early on in the season. And it seems like they didn't manage to regroup and like balance this out by having everyone getting involved. So it's a hard season. It's going to be a hard season. People are already claiming that we need severe management changes, but that won't fix injuries and that won't have Carey Price come back or Shea Weber and that the trades will not be undone. So it's an interesting situation, to say the least, to see how the, the Habs will perform in the next a few weeks. Uh, a lot of people have already thrown in the towel in the season and said, you know, we won't be making the playoffs. And, well, with a 4-13 and record, one would certainly think that it could be the case. But, you know, stranger things have happened. Remember the Blues a couple of years back who were dead last in January and made it, managed to come back? Uh, it's not the same feel in the East, but... Who knows? Miracles might happen. I don't foresee it coming, <laughs> to tell you the truth. But, uh, you know, uh, there are worse things in life than having your home team losing. I get to enjoy 31 other teams in the league that are fighting it out, and it's a, it's a privilege to be able to do so. I guess if there's any hope, if Carey Price does come back, getting perhaps the best goalie could could be that miracle they're looking for. I mentioned earlier you called number of different levels to – is that fun for you to get to watch some of the different ranks, you know, the, the juniors, the ECHL team, you guys got Quebec this year. Has, yep. has that been fun? It's a lot of work, uh, a lot of homework. Uh, as you were calling me, I was actually preparing the Worcester Railers, uh, a team that we'll only see once on the broadcast, but you know, you need to do your homework for every single, every single game. So, and, what I enjoy the most is the change of pace. When you see the juniors, you you see the difference of pace between juniors and ECHL. I get to work, you know, not being busy enough as an off-ice official with the Laval Rocket in the American Hockey League as well. So I, I get to touch basically four levels of hockey. So it makes me appreciate when I do NHL games also uh, just how good these guys are. And you, I have my season... 15-year pros that are key, still playing in the ECHL or the American Hockey League that do it mostly for the love of the game more than the money. Uh, and the junior guys, you know, they, they aspire to this. And the funny thing is, I've been doing junior since 2012, so a lot of the guys I've worked uh, and I've done play-by-play for in the early years are now all the guys that I see again in the ECHL, in the American Hockey League, and a few of them actually made it to the NHL. So to be able to tell their story and know know what they actually went through to get there with the trades and the bus rides to the Maritimes and the snowstorms and the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, it makes for a great story that I'm still able to share with our viewers every time I get to do a game. All right, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, you mentioned you grew up a fan. How did hockey come to you? I mean, my father played in a rec league and uh, took me to the arena. I think I was six or seven, and they actually allowed me to like start playing with them time the clock and everything. So I, I was actually doing timekeeping for his game 
And it was Friday night. Sometimes he would play the game at 11 p.m. We would head back home and grab a slice of pizza. And I had a great time. And, you know, we were watching the Canadians. My grand, my grandfather and my father both had the same favorite player in the history of the Montreal Canadiens. And my grandfather died at age 100 in 2016. So he saw them all. But his favorite, and I have him right over my head here, is Guy Lafleur. Uh, so I grew up to be a Guy Lafleur fan. Uh, but, you know... Being a kid, Lafleur came back to play with the Rangers in 1988. I was 11 then. And to me, Lafleur was actually, my love for Lafleur was greater than my love for the Canadians at the time. So I was rooting for him with the Rangers. I rooted for him with the Quebec Nordiques when he finished his career. And that's how I got into my life. Uh, of course, as any Canadian guy, I had been put on skates by age five or six and realized quite early that wasn't for me. That why I did. That's why I did the off ice stuff. I, I can go forward. I can't break. I can't turn left, turn right, or go backwards. So that's why my involvement off ice got greater and greater. I had no talent on the ice whatsoever, but uh, got to love the game. Got to work for the junior team when I was uh, 18 as their backup PA guy. Got the full time gig, and then moved to Montreal in 2000. Um, it's funny because I w- I've been told when I moved in Montreal just had a a team in the queue and I, I sent my resume, which was, you know, basically being the PA guy in Sherbrooke and moving. So I thought, you know, Hey, I could maybe have a chance to work the game in Montreal. And they told me, I remember the le- the letter dated August 8, 2000. You don't have what it takes to, you know, work in the Montreal market. It's a big market. And uh, when I did my first Canadians game, 18 months after that, I looked at that letter and I thought, you know, who would have known? It's a, it's a great story. And once again, I think it's perseverance or just taking that chance and believing in yourself is a great lesson. Well, thank you for taking the time out today of, from your homework and to join me. I r- really appreciate it. And I hope people can listen to you, call some more games this year on TV on. I'll, My I'll, pleasure. Glad. Great way to polish up your French, by the way. <laughs> uh, merci, mon ami. Merci à toi. Bonjour. Thanks again to Sebastian for coming on. If you enjoyed the conversation, check out previous episodes in the archives. Please subscribe to Inside the Barn on Apple, Spotify, or Google. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Sam Ober. Thanks for listening. <laughs>